think behind every adoption, there's usually trauma. I mean, there is. You just, families don't give up children without some kind of distressing circumstance, you know? It goes against human nature. Who am I? 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 This is Who Am I Really? A podcast about adoptees that have located and connected with their biological family members. I'm Damon Davis, and on today's show is Julie. She lives in Washington, D.C., Julie's early childhood was happy at home, but it was her circle of friends that made her question just what was wrong with being adopted. When she graduated college, her need for information for professional reasons made her stumble across an old document she'd seen before, which impulsively steered her down the path toward reunion. Along that road, she found trauma that she was already prepared to handle and disappointment that she's also thankful for. This is Julie's journey. Julie grew up in McLean, Virginia. She said her parents were very loving people who were somewhat open about her adoption from Catholic Charities. Julie was the oldest child in their house, followed by a younger sister adopted from San Antonio, Texas. A few years later, her parents were approved for a third international adoption from Mexico when her mother got pregnant. And I remembered her asking me, because at that point I was seven, you know, what what should what would I like to have happen since she was pregnant and going to have a child? And we all knew, you know, the adoption had gone through and what should we do? And I said, oh, you know, let's have both. But they didn't end up adopting the child from Mexico. And then my parents had another biological child two years after that. So there were four of us, two adopted, and then a pretty big gap, and then two more children that were biologically connected to my adopted parents. So in their home, there were two older adopted girls, a five-year gap, then two younger boys who were biological to her parents. That age differential can be challenging, but Julie said she was still close with her younger brothers, almost like a second mother to them, while navigating the normal, healthy battles that come with having a younger sister closer to her own age. But in her family, they didn't talk about adoption much, at least not as much as they could have. She said she didn't know enough to be curious and ask questions. If I brought it up, they would have talked about it, but most of it would be their anxiety about me being upset, right? It was like they definitely wanted to shelter me from that. And so it wasn't really talked about hardly at all, unless it was like more factual, like I had this fact sheet about my biological mother and father that had their age and their weight and their height and their interests and their nationalities and stuff like that. Um, I always had that. This fact sheet wasn't comprehensive at all. It only spoke of her birth parents in generalities, far less than what her actual non-identifying information would have. Julie's parents let her see the document, and she knew it was in a file if she ever wanted to review it again. What's interesting is the concept of adoption and its perception among her friends and in the community was the more challenging piece for her growing up. And I would say the bigger impact on me as I understood it growing up was 
in school and with peers and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea that I was adopted, I didn't know other people that were adopted. Like there was this one family in our church that had clearly adopted a child because their child was black and they were white, that type of thing, like an yeah. international adoption. Mm-hmm. But, and I, but I didn't even really know them. I could just see them across like, you know, we were part of a pretty big church. So I really, aside from my sister, didn't know anyone else adopted. Although, like, looking back, there probably were other adopted people. I just didn't know that. But I definitely knew when we did, well, first of all, every time I went to the doctor and they would ask questions about health history, those types of things, jokes like other kids would say about being adopted was basically equated with being unwanted or kind of defective, actually. Mm -hmm. It was like an insult you'd say to someone. If I would say I was adopted, most of my friends didn't want that to be true, mostly because they liked me. You know, they're like, that's not true. I'm like, no, it is true. They're like, no, because, because they, I don't know, I guess they thought I was normal and nice and kind and that couldn't be what an adoptee looks like or something. I I mean, I'm, they never said that, but I just know they didn't want me to be adopted. So that was, I don't know, that was hard. In fifth grade, Julie had one special best friend. They were both little tomboys and they played all kinds of sports together. Usually the only two girls in the mix with the boys. At school, the kids were learning about dominant and recessive traits. Their assignment was to note their mother's eye color, their father's eye color, and the kids were supposed to use a chart to pick the probability of their own eye color. And the teacher picked mine as an example. Like She was like, let me have one as an example, and she showed what I had written. Well, of course, I, I guess I had that fact sheet, but at that age, I didn't, I don't know, I didn't know that info, so I just put down my adoptive parents info and my friend that is in front of the whole class does the whole thing and she was just being like scientific I guess you know she was like but wait a second that's not relevant this whole discussion is not relevant because this is not her biological line and I remember just feeling so embarrassed that she said that even though it wasn't mean-hearted it was like more trying to understand the truth or get to the factual piece that the teacher was trying to teach. But I was like, oh my gosh, like kind of horrified. I didn't keep it secret from people, but I wouldn't announce it like that in front of, you know, 25 kids. When Julie finished college at 22, she was traveling a lot for work as a consultant in systems engineering, and she needed documentation to update her passport. She left her home in Washington, D.C. to visit her parents in McLean, Virginia, to pick up the info. The info she needed was stored in the same file as her adoption documentation. Yeah, I don't know. I guess my life was feeling more settled. Like I had a job. I was an adult. Maybe I had a little more bandwidth for it. But when I opened that file, I was like, huh. And it was on letterhead. And it said Catholic Charities and had the address and phone number. And just like that, without thinking at all, I called the number. I guess I was, if you've read any of the adoption literature, like I was the quote unquote good adoptee, right? Like Mm -hmm. I performed really well at everything. It was super anxiety driven, right? Because I think somewhere in my mind, I thought if I'm like perfect and do everything well and don't bother anyone and people like me, then I won't be given up again. And so I was that kid and my sister you know, although she didn't like become a drug addict or any other thing, was like much more volatile and like would do kind of volatile things. And she was like 
difficult. Although, you know, she went to college and all that stuff, but she was just a lot more challenging and combative. And with some regularity, she would scream at my parents, you're not my real parents. They're like, I'm going to leave or stuff like that, where I would, I even remember as a kid saying, oh my gosh, you can't do say stuff like that. Don't you realize what they're doing for us? Because I really felt like a charity case. Like they're feeding us, they're clothing us. I don't, I mean, my parents didn't think that, but I obviously was like acutely aware that I was a visitor kind of thing. And so, yeah, just like that. I, I had never thought about finding my biological parents. I had never thought about doing anything like that I thought would upset my adoptive parents. And so I just called. On that impulsive call, Julie had no idea what to say. So she just started sharing that she was adopted through Catholic Charities several years ago. The woman invited Julie to make an appointment with a social worker who gave her more non-identifying information. It was very emotional, too, because there I am at the agency, and I feel like that was kind of, it was just an interesting moment for me. Not so conscious of the whole bigger thing, but um, I could, you know, it obviously, like, pulled up a lot of feelings. Right after Julie started talking about her feelings, I realized she expressed another set of feelings that she really hadn't explained. Take me back a little bit to your teenage years, because you said something really interesting. You said, I was acutely aware that I was a visitor. And I didn't get the impression that your family made you feel that way. Like, you haven't said anything that you, that has indicated that you felt othered or like an outsider or anything like that. So how did you arrive at this feeling of, of being a visitor in your home? You know, to be honest, I think, like, I look back on that moment because I know that I was, I told my sister that. Like, I know that those words came out of my mouth. Like, that kind of idea, like, that that, that the food and the shelter and all that stuff was like a charity. But I think it comes from a bigger, yeah, I don't think it was what my parents were doing. I think it comes from a, the bigger cultural context of what it means to be orphaned and then taken in by someone else. And because the dominant, I, that's what I, that's all I can conclude because no one overtly said that to me. It was more the other types of things that I, I'm mentioning to you about like the other kids not wanting that to be true because it meant something. Ah, so this was a collective kind of, feeling over yeah, time. Yeah, I think it was more of a cultural mm-hmm. thing about what it means to be adopted. Yeah. And that's the way I internalized it. You know, there I was born into unfortunate circumstances. And it's interesting. Hmm. Just as an adult person who's been pretty active in the adoptee community for a couple of decades, that mm-hmm. that the dominant narrative isn't you know, look how lucky these people are that were infertile and wanted to have a baby. The dominant narrative, I think, had a lot to do with the way I had internalized my position Hmm. in our culture. It wasn't my parents. Julie petitioned the courts to open her records, paid a private investigator to locate her birth mother, and they found her right away. The process continued with Julie's introductory letter being mailed to the woman's confirmed address. Then, the rest was up to her birth mother. Julie included her phone number in the letter, and she can remember the moment her birth mother called her in Florida, 26 years ago, 
and we had a nice talk. She's super cool. Like she was like really open and, um, I didn't know at that moment, like how lucky I was in that regard. Just having had so many friends, like adoptee friends work this reunion thing and have really, you know, challenging or no relationship with their biological mom or dad for various different complicated reasons. But, but yeah, she was really cool. She was super open, just like, so David, the reason I stopped is because, oh my God, I think I mentioned too, she passed away this summer. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, so it's, like, kind of remembering all this stuff is, like, a little bit hard because, you know, she's uh, she was a super cool person and uh, mm. really strong. She went through a lot. And, uh, yeah, I feel lucky about that. But, like, also sad that she passed away just, you know, last month, actually. Yeah. I'm sorry. I'm I admit that I forgot that how recent her passing was. And yeah, my condolences. Like, That's really sad. I'm it sorry. was like a week or two after we were supposed to talk the first time. So. Yeah. Wow. Her mother's death is a complicated story. Julie recalls that about a month prior, her birth mother was on the phone with Kelsey, Julie's maternal sister. On that call, she said her mother felt tired and her voice sounded weak. They rushed her to the hospital, where the medical team diagnosed her with walking pneumonia, a lung infection, and a variety of other problems. The clinical staff put her into a medically induced coma, and they corrected many of the major issues their mother was having. When the team brought her back from the coma, she didn't fully recover. She had come to right away, but she was starting to show progress to the point where like responding, not really talking, but like hand squeezing and eye stuff that was saying that was responding correctly to questions and things like that. And so they were they moved her to a kind of a rehab facility because they expected her to just come online gradually, but didn't need the hospital care. And the day they moved her, she died. Oh boy. So what I was going to say is that my theory is that. Pretty much everything surrounding my conception and her and the relinquishment, she was 15 um, and then 16 when when she had me, um, was super traumatic. It totally took her off course of her life. Julie explained that after relinquishing her as a teenager, her birth mother had a bit of a drug problem for many years. When she settled down, Julie's younger sisters, more than 20 years her junior, were born. So I think like those health complications are a result of a lot of trauma that happened surrounding like my birth and then giving yeah. me up and a lot of her life after that. Actually, annoying thing that bothered me when I was first in reunion was that I felt like she wasn't, she was always taking people in off the street, like people who, not not just anyone, but people she got to know that were in a really hard position and needed help and, like, were struggling with, like, you know, criminal stuff or drug stuff. Or yeah. I think she could relate to feeling really lost and wanting someone to, like, support her and, like, be there for her. And so she was always bringing these people in. And at her funeral, the, I mean, there were so many people there that were, like, 
she's so generous. She always believed in me. She would like help me with a turning point in my life and stuff. But I was so worried about my sisters. I was like, this is not a good environment for little kids. You know, it's mm-hmm. not, she's not protecting them. But I think it was all tied up in her own trauma around giving me up. Yeah. Which was forced for her. She was a minor and her father like forced it. Oh, it wow. wasn't something she wanted. So anyway, it was just it's very complicated. Wow. Yeah. It sounds like that traumatic start with you. And then it sounds like she just, one, struggled and therefore turned to illicit substances. And then two, sounds like she also just tried to give back so much to so many people as a way to recover from having lost you in the first place. That's just a guess, but that's. That's what it feels like to me when you say she was taking in people. I'm sure she just generally had a big heart, but it it feels like she was trying to claw back at you and the loss. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think I think behind every adoption there's usually trauma. I mean there is. You just families don't give up children without some kind of distressing circumstance, you know? It goes yeah. against human nature. Like Julie said, her birth mother passed away earlier this summer of 2019. They were in reunion for 26 years. Going back to that time in their lives, Julie told me she met her birth mother almost immediately. When they spoke by phone, her birth mother said she just needed a little bit of time to tell everyone in her family about what was about to happen with their plans to meet. Julie's birth mother had a common-law husband who didn't know she had another daughter out there in the world, so she needed to catch him up on that untold part of her personal history. Working as a consultant in the 1990s, Julie's company would fly her home every weekend or wherever she wanted as long as the airfare was the same price or cheaper than going home. So Julie flew out to Northern California near San Francisco kind of crazy but I because I didn't know them at all but I stayed with them I yeah. stayed with them for the weekend um how was and it and it was nice you know a bunch a bunch of other family came you know it was one of the things that was a little complicated was she was like yeah of course I'd love to meet you and she was like so full of shame she was like I hope you don't hate me or like I was always worried you'd be mad at me or that kind of a thing um which I didn't really feel uh I definitely was like still drinking the Kool-Aid of like, it was better. It was better for you. It was better for my parents. It was better for me. And in some, some cases that's true. I mean, in some ways that was true, but it wasn't the whole story. It was more complex than that. And so she said, well, you know, I never told anyone. The only people that knew that I had a baby were my parents. And then my brother, who was the next in line, because she was the oldest in her family, so he knew. And no one else, like even her best friend, thought she just went to study for a year in California. Wow. She had me. My birthday's in May, and she went back to school, to high school in September, as if nothing had happened. So she had you in California? No, that was just a story. Oh. She had me in D.C. Okay. She had me in a, like home for unwed mothers that was, you know, funded by Catholic charities. Julie said it was a surreal experience to be amongst her biological relatives. She also recognizes how oblivious she was to what adoption means and what it meant to her then, as opposed to what it means to her now. 
And I also was like, I don't know, I just, I was so unconscious of what was going on. I was just like, sure, whatever, I'll just go out there. Um, mm. And everyone was nice, and it was wild to have everyone kind of look like me and all be staring at me. So that's like a weird experience. <laughs> but I was, uh, I was pretty shut down as a person at that moment in my life. And so I was just like, it's fine, it's whatever. Hi, nice to meet you, blah, 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 blah. How do you mean that shut down? I just wasn't as a cute. I'll I'll talk more about that when I talk about like having my own children, but I just wasn't aware of all of the loss or like all of the backstory or, or my own loss around not growing up with any of my biological relatives or I just wasn't aware. I was like, you know, I was like, adoption was a nice, neat story. It was like mm-hmm. a trifecta of people in need, right? It was like birth family not capable or like whatever, parents who are infertile and baby who doesn't have like care. So it was like the perfect solution. And that's all I knew. I was like, it's easy. It was simple. You know, it was just like a great thing. Adoption is a great thing. And that's Yes, I still think that was true for me, but it's much more complicated because it's riddled with loss. Julie referred to herself as shut down, meaning she wasn't fully aware of what it means to give birth to and relinquish a child. Fast forward 10 years after her reunion with her biological mother to when Julie had her first daughter. She asked her adoptive parents to send her own christening gown from her childhood because it was special to her and she wanted to use it for her daughter's baptism. They sent it to me. It was super sweet with the little bonnet and the little shoes, and there was a nice note, and inside of it was a picture of me, and it was a picture the day that they picked me up from Catholic Charities, and it was a picture I had seen my whole life. It was in my baby album along with other pictures, and my mom, you know, on the back of every picture wrote the date and what had happened and all that stuff with every picture. So I flipped it over. Keep in mind, this had been in an album and it had the date on it. And the date was well over two months after I had been born. And it was like the best day of our lives. We picked Julie up from Catholic Charities and then it had the date on it. Uh And I couldn't even stay standing. I literally like fell onto the chair in my daughter's room. Because I then, I kind of knew what it meant to, like, not have a parent. Like, I had just spent all this time, hour by hour, like, moment by moment, learning about how to bond with my child. And all this time, like, morning, noon, and night, feeding her, caring for her, like, all this just important stuff that my, you know, my lactation consultant and the doula and every other person had said was so important around brain development and around relationship and attachment and all this stuff. And then here's this picture that's like, yay, we picked her up. She's two and a half months old. I was like, whoa. I compared it to what it had been like to have my daughter and what we had done in the first two and a half months together and picturing myself as a baby being... Not well, at that, that time, I didn't know where I was. Yeah. And now I know I was in a room with, you know, 20 other babies being cared for by lots of very nice women, but not one single person. And, you know, and my needs were one of many among many, right? And so 
it's just a far cry from what had happened with my daughter. And it made it come to life in a way yeah. that was very different than the story. When I was a child, babies are just like little blobs in a blanket, right? They don't, I don't know. You know it's just like, there's not much to it. Yeah. And to me, like, it's like you get a baby and the baby's just there and it doesn't, you know, any of that infant psychology or infant development was not something that was in my mind or that I was aware of. Sure. And so because I had just lived it with my daughter and because I'm also, you know, a student of infant psychology and had worked in trauma as a clinician because I went on and got my master's and my PhD in social work after that kind of engineering and working for a couple of years. And so you know, it was just very, I don't know, it just came to life in a much different way. And, yeah. and more importantly, in a, in a sensory way, I was like, whoa, like it just hit me so hard. Early in her clinical career, Julie worked at a rape crisis center here in Washington, D.C. She worked heavily with sexual assault and abuse. So it hit her that perhaps she should tread lightly when asking her birth mother how she was conceived. Julie knew that back then her birth father was a hot guy from another school that her mother dated only briefly one summer. She also knew that her birth mother pretty much hated her birth father, and he didn't know Julie existed. I remember this, yeah, this one conversation. She basically said that she was like, well, I was a virgin, and put it this way, like, after we had sex, I never talked to him again. So she said it in like an ownership type way. And I was like, was that something that you wanted to have happen? And she was like, no. And so I said, I said, oh, so you were raped. And she's like, well, I wouldn't put it that way because I liked him and we were dating and stuff like that. But she was, I mean, she was date raped basically. Wow. But nonetheless, I wanted to, it was more recent. It was like in the last five years, I wanted to find my father because first of all, Things are complicated, and just because that happened doesn't mean he was, like, a full-on monster, right? I mean, there are lots of messages that go out to boys about no means yes and what it means to be a man and, like, how things get negotiated around sex mm -hmm. that aren't healthy but are real. And sometimes there are circumstances where a woman is forced to have sex that they don't want to have but the guy just thinks they're doing what is the way things go because they're dumb too and they're young she went on to say that she didn't even realize it until she found her paternal side even after knowing her maternal relatives that there's a whole package of people that comes with reunion julie pointed out that even if a person's mother or father isn't doing very well in life there's still an entire tribe of people that an adoptee might get to meet as reunions continue. Julie credits her birth mother with being instrumental in helping her find her birth father. And she was so courageous because I knew when we were talking, she was triggered, like back to this trauma that she never dealt with or never processed. And But she would still give me first name, last name, address, whatever I needed. But Julie had a hard time looking for the man. She characterized her demeanor then as ambivalent about the whole thing. So she recruited her husband to help her carry on the search to get her across the finish line. She asked for that final bit of legwork as her birthday gift one year. And that's exactly what he gave her. She's been in reunion with her paternal side for five years, but listen to this. 
I have met my father, but he didn't know it was me, and that's a whole complicated story. Julie's husband was a sleuth, feeding her people to connect with on Facebook. She finally connected to a cousin who doesn't live far from her birth father, who is incredibly reclusive. He's also been an alcoholic for decades and isn't a very functional man. But this cousin lived near him, so she would go to his house and ask him questions. When the cousin asked if he remembered Julie's birth mother, he said yes, but he didn't know that he'd gotten her pregnant. Julie said one of the ways they were able to track him down at all was because of his long string of missed court appearances for child support hearings with multiple mothers. It's rumored that he has up to 11 children, but Julie has only found five paternal siblings so far. Anyway, Julie flew down to Texas with the hopes of meeting the reclusive man and other relatives. And then I hoped he would see me, but he said he didn't want to meet me. And likewise, my grandmother did not want to meet me. Neither one of them were interested, which was very disappointing. About a year later, Julie's paternal grandmother passed away. One of her paternal brothers, who lives here in our area, was making the trip down to Texas, so Julie decided to go too. After consulting a lot of my adoptee friends who were really supportive and were like trying to help me figure out what was right for me, so I went down to the funeral because I thought I still wanted to meet my dad, and, and I knew he would be there. I knew it. And so I went down, but I asked everyone to please help me be anonymous, like not say who I was and just be there. And so, yeah, so I met him first while he was very drunk the night before, like there was a viewing the the day before. And I got there right, you know, like an hour before the viewing was ended, ending. That's like when my flight got in and all that. And I was surrounded by a couple of cousins, my brother, just people kind of like taking care of me in a way, just emotionally. Mm -hmm. And he, it was kind of gross, actually. He came up to me in a like gross way. Like he was eyeing me up and down and like, I don't know, he was drunk and being gross. So I just, I didn't even talk to him. I just kind of was like, ugh. And I kind of like stayed away from him and everyone was annoyed because he was so drunk and Mm -hmm. all the stuff. So he left. Mm -hmm. Well, the next morning, he was one of the pallbearers, and so I saw him sober, and I was sharing a hotel room with my brother, and so we came in together, and and he was also a pallbearer, so he said hi, but he just thought I was a guest there. He was like, oh, hi, and he was more normal, and I watched him also in the funeral, because he was, he was a mess. He couldn't, he couldn't stay through half of it. He had to walk out, and when the... Um, like emotional. He just looked like a little kid who was so lost and kind of a mess. And he also during the funeral, he, uh, not the funeral, the, where they put the body into the ground, that part of it later, he couldn't be with everyone. He was watching, but he was like far away, like 50 yards away watching everything. Um, and so then I felt more like, Oh, he's so vulnerable. He's just a mess, like a messed up, traumatized, messed up person. So, that's pretty much it with my birth father, and I've maintained relationships with cousins and siblings and all that stuff. Mm. So, messy. How was it? Did you, do you, you know, sometimes you're glad you did something, sometimes you kind of wish you hadn't. Where, where do you lie? Where does it lie with you that you've met him? Glad about all of it. Yeah. I'm glad about all of it. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, it's just so grounding for me. I feel like 
you know, of course, this, like, relationship that I have with my maternal sisters is great. And, like, I have some siblings on my paternal side that I don't really care for that much. Or we don't really click. But the, the two that are here locally, I really like a lot. And there's a social thing we're going to go to in a couple weeks that we always do each year together. And I don't know. It's, it's really nice. But also, even the bad part, you know, the the trauma stuff or the parts that I wished weren't there or the qualities in certain people that I wish weren't there. Like it all helps me feel more settled. Like I'm on the planet. Like these are people that I'm, this is my story, you know, and even the bad parts or the parts that are hard to digest help me feel more grounded. Today, Julie's work is focused on psychology and clinical practice. Basically, Developing an expertise in trauma, what it does to us, and how it shows up in our lives. She said her tolerance for trauma in her life is higher because of her experiences and expertise. She pointed out that choosing the Rape Crisis Center for Employment, the lowest paying, least glamorous of the offers she had at the time, is something she's so glad she chose to do because it prepared her for part of her own story. So I asked Julie to tell me a bit more about her work these days. Since 2010, Dr. Julie Lopez has run the Viva Center, focusing on mental health. You may have heard her present as part of the Healing Series on another podcast, Adoptees On with Haley Radke. We specialize completely in nonverbal therapies. So everyone's master's, PhD level, licensed practitioners, but our niche and what we're known for is all of these clinicians that have done postgraduate training in body or brain-based therapies. And it's been really beautiful. And I feel like a lot of it is tied into my personal story as an adoptee and my own personal therapeutic journey to move symptoms that I now feel are totally related to my experience of being adopted. I just didn't know it at the time, like in my early 20s and so on. But it's what, it, it's what introduced me to brain-based work. And it's all that stuff, you know, how I said it hit me so hard, what my two and a half months might have looked like as different than my daughter's two and a half months right. and what, how that might have influenced me because I struggled with vertigo, like debilitating vertigo, which cleared up in one session because I was doing one of these brain-based therapies, but like I was having it done for me. Um, it had kind of been introduced into my life and there's been other like major relationship struggles I've had, like not trusting other people, pushing people away, like pretty much being a lone ranger, that type of thing and self-esteem things like really working to follow my own path. Like that move was so hard for me to go back to school and do a different type of profession that wasn't as like revered or cherished in our culture. and you know, but it was right for me. Like some of those types of things where I was pulling the control back into myself instead of always scanning for other people and making sure it was right for them. I mean, you could call it codependency or that mm -hmm. type of thing. There's, there's clinical terms for it too, but having an external locus of control, that's been my therapeutic journey. And then now I have the center where it's really focused on the very types of therapies that really do amazing work with injuries that happen before we're conscious, which is the age of three. That's when I could get really nerdy right now, but <laughs> for, for the purposes of the story, there's something in your brain that develops 
at that point, which makes memories more conscious. It's typically around the age of three. But anything that happens before that still affects your human system, but there's no conscious memory of it. So it's why a lot of times people who have early trauma feel broken or they just feel like they're defective and they don't realize there's actually experiences that they may have had that have created mapping in their system, right, that's still affecting them today. Yeah, actually, hey. I'm going out to, have you ever been to one of the AAC conferences or no? No, American I haven't Adoption yet. Congress? No. Yeah. Oh, well, there's the next, next year in, in uh, San Diego. I'm going to be one of the keynotes. Oh, that's awesome. So, Fantastic. Yeah, so that'll be fun. I thank you, Julie, so much for taking time this morning. This has been amazing. I'm, I really liked hearing the fact that you've sort of identified not only with your own journey, but how you needed to personally and professionally sort of invest in the kinds of therapies that are going to be beneficial both to yourself and to other people. So thank you for your work and thank you for your time today. Yeah, no problem. It was great to be on here and thanks for having me. Oh, of course. My pleasure. I wish you all the best. Cool. Thanks for having me, David. Yeah, Take no care. problem. All the best. Bye-bye. Bye. Hey, it's me. Julie's story was fascinating, partially because her work in a rape crisis center prepared her for how to navigate her birth mother's prior trauma at the hands of her birth father, and later, when she had to relinquish Julie. It kind of reminded me of Jenny's, aka Cammie's, volunteer work, which prepared her to meet her birth father when she found him homeless and drug addicted. It's really interesting that our lives sometimes prepare us for experiences we're going to have later. I was struck by the moment when Julie received her own christening gown and saw a picture of herself months after her birth. She had one of those deeply impactful moments when an adoptee sometimes realizes that they were, at one early point, in between somewhere, not with their birth mother and not with their adoptive parents yet. They were just out there alone for a while. You should check out the Viva Center online at vivapartnership.com where you can learn about the practitioners their training programs, and commitment to changing the face of what mental health looks like in the community. You can also check out Julie's book, Live Empowered, on Amazon.com. The book is really about performing at your best, whether it's in work, in relationships, or in your own life, and that there's this great way to really move through obstacles if you have any of them. I'm Damon Davis, and I hope you'll find something in Julie's journey that inspires you validates your feelings about wanting to search, or motivates you to have the strength along your journey to learn. Who am I, really? And hey, don't forget to leave a rating for the show wherever you get your podcasts. They mean a lot to me, and those ratings can help others to find the podcast too. Thanks for listening. If you're interested, you can find Who Am I Really? An Adoptee Memoir on Amazon.com. And like I always say, I hope you'll find something in my story that inspires you, validates your feelings about wanting to search, or motivates you to have the strength along your journey to learn. Who am I, really?